0: Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are mostly theological and biblical, but today, historical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. This is the sixth of eight episodes in a series that will track the history of the 2nd Tennessee Volunteer Infantry USA. Southern men who fought in the Union Army in the Civil War, don't call them Yankees. One of them, Alvis Duncan Hicks, was my ancestor. My Grandmother's Grandfather. We're following this regiment from the formation of the regiment through its first major action in the Battle of Mill Springs. Now, why tell a story about an uncelebrated unit and its unknown members? Because a person's life is not small and inconsequential, because it is without fame. In today's episode, we continue our look at one of the many untold and little-known stories of the American Civil War. In the fall of 1861, pro-Union citizens of East Tennessee, who were in fact the majority there, felt like a country under occupation. There was now no escaping the fact that the rebels were in charge. But some still held out hope that they could shake loose from the Confederate grip. Influential persons had formed a cadre of Unionist partisans to carry out a fifth-column sabotage operation to open the way for the Federal Army, sent from General Sherman to march in drive the rebels out, and re-establish East Tennessee as a Unionist stronghold. In the vanguard would be regiments of Tennessee men who had left their state for the very purpose of returning in force. Tennessee Men Chapter 6, Burning Bridges, Part 2. Backlash. On the night of November 8, 1861, Bands of these partisans set out on a mission to destroy, by fire, nine key railroad bridges along the Grand Trunk. They were successful in burning five, but they were all minor spans that were easily repaired. The three most important ones not only were not torched, they were not even touched. No one was killed, although a few suffered injury, but several of the participants in this secret mission were recognized and identified. November 9th. The Cold Light of Day. Throughout East Tennessee, hundreds of Unionist men dug out their old shotguns and squirrel rifles and flintlock pistols and whatever else could pass for a weapon, and began gathering at rendezvous points for the support of Federal troops that they expected to come any day, if not any hour. The most significant of these hopeful assemblies took place in W. B. Carter's hometown of Elizabethton, an episode that came to be called the Carter County Rebellion. Fully a thousand had gathered there by noon on Saturday the 9th, and hundreds were still arriving. They were coming not only from Carter County, but also from the surrounding counties, and and even from across the North Carolina border. All of them expected to be auxiliaries to a large army already on the march. Confederate Captain David McClellan, commander of the 125-strong Company of Rebel Troops guarding the Carter Station crossing, had already begun arresting suspected bridge-burners. One of Daniel Stover's men, young S.H. Hendricks, holds the dubious honor of being the very first of these arrests. He was also the first to escape. He had presented a credible alibi to his captors and was permitted some limited liberty, enabling him to sneak away to Elizabethton to warn his fellows that Private Stanford Jenkins... Remember him who, in exchange for his life, had sworn not to expose the identities of the people he recognized at the bridge? Well, he had gone against his word. Hearing of these arrests, and seeing their own numbers swelling, these men felt confident that they could easily beat the rebels and rescue the prisoners. It didn't matter to them that they had no training, no competent officers to direct them, and that half of them were not even armed. They scoured Elizabethton for butcher knives, pitchforks, and other implements that might be used for weapons, and at about three that afternoon set off for the rebel camp. Chroniclers of this episode acknowledged that, in their words, they were really an unorganized mob, without leaders, discipline, or any knowledge of what war meant. Apparently, however, once they drew near to the camp, the sight of the Confederate pickets dampened their enthusiasm enough to let them listen to Stover and a few other cooler heads. These men persuaded them to withdraw back across the Watauga River to camp at a farm for the night. The men elected Colonel Stover to be their leader, gathered together enough food for supper, selected some men to stand the first watch, and curled up around the fires with their blankets. Their rest was interrupted by shots from Confederate rifles. Captain McClellan led an after-dark assault against the disorganized army of civilians. Doubtless expecting that a surprise attack would disperse the mob and net him some prisoners. And, probably to McClellan's surprise, the ragtag group returned a lively resisting fire and inflicted some damage on the attackers. After a while, McClellan withdrew into the night. The Unionists suffered no casualties, but a number of them fled when the shooting started, although many returned the next day. Eventually, they all returned as a group to Elizabethton, some 1,500 of them where people had to open up their winter stores of meat in order to feed them. On the morning of the 12th, they sent one of their leading men to discover news of the progress of the invasion. And like Noah's raven, he returned that evening with no encouraging word. There was yet no sign of Sherman's army. Backlash Over Saturday and Sunday... The impact of the bridge attacks rippled throughout the South. General Zollicoffer immediately dispatched a regiment to Knoxville. Civilian authorities called out posses to round up anyone and everyone suspected of treason. The Confederates of East Tennessee were in a panic, and the whole state was in high alarm. By Monday morning, November 11th, that sense of alarm had spread throughout the Confederacy. Exaggerations, rumors, and false reports abounded as information began to crackle over the telegraph wires, uh, that is, the ones that the bridge burners failed to cut. And as Oliver Temple remembers it, the bridge-burning panic was not confined to the state of Tennessee. The Southern Confederacy was startled and stirred from end to end. Men awoke frightened as if by a horrible dream. Universal consternation prevailed in East Tennessee. Other and greater calamities were expected to follow immediately. The military authorities and railroad officials were thrown into a wild and unreasonable panic. They hastened to and fro, and stormed and issued orders as if they had just lost a decisive battle. What horrified them the most was that the attack had come from within. Support for secession was never unanimous, and there were identifiable pockets of Union support in really every southern state, with the possible exception of South Carolina, which was, incidentally, the only state that did not contribute volunteers with a federal army. Suddenly now, every neighbor who was not an ardent Confederate was a potential insurgent. To add insult to injury, the attack had taken place in the midst of celebrations of the election of the new government. Richmond was in as much consternation as Nashville, if not more. The whole incident was seen not as a military attack, but as a dire internal threat, an insurrection against a legitimate government and a personal affront to the new president, Jefferson Davis. Colonel W.B. Wood put Knoxville under martial law and began arresting people under the narrowest of suspicions. The writ of habeas corpus, so sacred to freedom, as President Davis had put it, was set aside indefinitely. Now the strictures of martial law finally began to ease by February as the feeling of crisis subsided. But it was not until August 1862 that Secretary Judah Benjamin would explicitly inform Confederate commanders that they had no authority to suspend habeas corpus. In The following September, he revoked all declarations of martial law that were made without presidential authorization. Significantly, though, he still reserved for President Davis the right to declare martial law and to suspend habeas corpus, the very powers for which Davis and the Confederate government had charged Lincoln with tyranny. Among those swept up at the dragnet were notables such as Judge David T. Patterson, who was another son-in-law of Andrew Johnson, Congressman Thomas A.R. Nelson, Senator Samuel Pickens, and William G. Brownlow, better known as Parson. Anyone remotely considered to be connected to the bridge burning was brought in, including the Stampeders pilot, Benjamin Tolliver Staples, remember him? Who was suspiciously absent from his home on the evening of November 8th. Some of those arrested had personal connections with the Tennessee troops stuck helplessly in London, Kentucky, the most significant being Levi Truett, the father of Lieutenant Colonel Daniel C. Truett of the 2nd Tennessee. Anticipating a major uprising of Unionists, Colonel Wood on November 11th sent a lengthy message to Adjutant and Inspector General Samuel Cooper, apprising him that, quote, the whole country is now in a state of rebellion. A mild or conciliating policy will do no good. They must be punished. The War Department in Richmond agreed, and on that same day dispatched Colonel Danville Ledbetter to East Tennessee with a brigade of Floridians and South Clarolinians, and with orders to take charge of protecting and rebuilding the railroad bridges. The real mission, unwritten but plainly understood, was to put down the Unionist uprising. A West Point-trained engineer, Ledbetter was by birth a Maine Yankee. Stationed in the South before the war and married to a Southern woman, he identified with the Southern cause and abandoned his U.S. Army commission for a Confederate one. Whether his Northern roots put a chip on his shoulder is arguable. What is clear is that he did not consider mercy and compassion to be part of his job. He took on his assignment with a zealous ferocity that earned him an infamous name among Tennessee Unionists. Daniel Ellis would later write, A more bloodthirsty and infamous scoundrel never set his foot upon the soil of East Tennessee. His hardline policy was backed by Secretary of War Judah Benjamin. Benjamin had at first given Colonel Wood directions to treat those involved in the bridge pot as prisoners of war to be interned until the end of the war. He soon took a harder line and gave the infamous order to put the bridge burners themselves to drumhead court-martial, followed by immediate hanging in the vicinity of the bridge they burned. Their bodies, he directed, should be left to rot as a deterrent to traitors. On the 15th, Ledbetter arrived in Johnson City with his brigade of infantry and two mountain howitzers. Stover's little army never intended to face a force like this. They prudently dispersed a few days later, and the Carter County Rebellion was over ten days after it began. Ledbetter's troops picked up some of the stragglers, but most of these men ended up going north to join new volunteer regiments, while some stayed behind to conduct a partisan guerrilla war. One of those was Daniel Ellis. Ellis was captured as a bridge burner, and his captors were preparing to execute him by firing squad when he audaciously broke away and ran. In a manner befitting a good adventure story, he escaped his pursuers, who chased him both on horseback and on foot as he disappeared in the forest hills. As the initial shock of the attack faded, outrage and indignation took its place. The ensuing investigation was methodical and ruthless. Now, All the leaks, all the loose talk, and all the overheard conversations came back to haunt the bridge burners as they were identified and apprehended. Sherman pulls back. Days before the raid, Andrew Johnson had accusingly asked George Thomas whether he was about to pull back his forward brigade, and the question clearly annoyed the general. As it turns out... Johnson's rumors were better than Thomas's sources in Sherman's camp. Sherman was already persuaded that Buckner's army at Bowling Green consisted of 45,000 men, three times larger than its actual size. Apparently, he reasoned that if Buckner had 45,000, then Zollicoffer must also have at least 20,000 at his South Kentucky stronghold, three to four times more than his true force. His anxiety increased as he pondered the next step. In his own mind, he determined that Johnston was preparing to drive a wedge between his forces, take Louisville, and then move on to Cincinnati. That thought alarmed him as he realized how spread out his own army was. His anxiety was aggravated by his personal conviction, contrary to fact, that the vast majority of the population of Kentucky was rebel at heart and would turn on the federal troops like jackals if the Confederate Army went on the offensive. So on November 12th, he revised his orders and directed Thomas to move the bulk of his troops to the rear of Danville, although he'd let him leave a couple of regiments at London to guard the Wilderness Road. His purpose, he explained years later, was to concentrate his dispersed forces. His orders did not, in fact, achieve an effective concentration, but rather expended a great deal of energy and unnecessary movement to confront a phantom. Thomas tried to argue that there was no evidence that Johnston had any such purpose to attack. He pointed out that all his intelligence indicated that the enemy was in fact withdrawing from his front. Sherman had made up his mind, however, and rejected out of hand all information that might contradict him. Always the good soldier, Thomas unhappily obeyed his orders and began the pullback. The main body of Alban force, under Thomas, withdrew to Crab Orchard. One of Thomas's staffers, Thomas Van Horn, describes the immediate effect of the move both on the army and on the general. He writes, The withdrawal of Thomas's forces caused great suffering and loss of men and material. Sickness was prevalent, and the march was a hurried one. As it was not generally known at the time who was responsible for the movement, censure was heaped upon him. Correspondents and critics depicted the sufferings of the men and the loss of material and discerning no compensative results, attempted to balance accounts with abuse of Thomas. Under this abuse and misrepresentation, he was silent, waiting, as at other times, for time and history to do him justice. The 1st and 2nd Tennessee remained at London camp under their own general, Samuel P. Carter. This apparently enabled the resolution to a looming conflict within the chain of command, one of the few positives in this whole business. You see, while General Bull Nelson was setting up Camp Dick Robinson, Carter was busy recruiting new regiments. But then, after Thomas took over, he seems to have used Carter as a roving interim aide-de-camp. When Zollicoffer marched into Kentucky, Thomas assigned Carter to bring him intelligence on Zollicoffer's movements, leading up to the Battle of Camp Wildcat. Carter himself took an active part in field reconnaissance and sent regular dispatches to Thomas regarding the enemy's advance. But after Albin Sheph took command of the brigade that included Carter's Tennessee volunteers, it was not clear what Carter's role actually was. Carter was often out on some assignment, but whenever he was in the camp, Colonels Carter and Bird reported to him instead of to Sheph. On November 3rd, Sheff wrote to Thomas, I'm somewhat at a loss regards the position of General Carter, who claims a kind of command of the Tennessee Brigade. Although no inconvenience has so far arisen from this claim, it is certainly liable to produce clashing at any moment. Please advise me in the matter. Sherman's orders actually required the splitting of Sheff's command, which thus headed off the potential power duel between the brigadiers. And by November 12th, Carter was signing letters, Acting Brigadier General Commanding East Tennessee Brigade, an epithet that Thomas certainly authorized. The fact that they did not have to evacuate with the rest and had their own original general back did not improve the Tennesseans' mood. It now began to sink in on them that they were not going to march south any time soon, and their restlessness turned into disappointment and anger. And neither did they know anything about the reasons for the orders that they were given, nor about the new command shakeup that was even now going on in the Army headquarters. Is that officer that Secretary Cameron had left as an observer at Sherman's headquarters wired him a report detailing the decisions that Sherman had made and his rationale for making them. But he also suggested that the General was becoming unraveled under the pressure of his situation. Cameron was now faced with the dilemma, of whether he should sack the newly appointed commander. But before he could make the call, on November 13th, Sherman himself requested to be relieved of command and reassigned to a subordinate role. Cameron promptly granted his request. He transferred the general to the western command of Henry Old Brain's Halleck, where he would be reunited with his friend Ulysses S. Sam Grant. Halleck, saying he looked stampeded, immediately granted Sherman indefinite leave. Sherman left the war zone directly for a reunion with his wife, and the weeks they spent together at home in Ohio were sufficiently rejuvenating to save his career. Indeed, perhaps his sanity. To replace Sherman, the secretary appointed Don Carlos Buell, effective November 15th. Buell was a highly competent but flatly uncharismatic officer, as balanced and steady as Sherman was mercurial. He did not share Sherman's panic over the tactical situation in Kentucky and seems to have come in with a more realistic assessment of A.S. Johnston's manpower, capabilities, and intentions. Samuel Carter observed the change of command and was certainly aware of its potential implications for operations in East Tennessee. It was perhaps with the hope that the change would also bring a renewed impetus for a push into East Tennessee that he wrote to Thomas with a view that the letter would make it to Buell and strengthen Thomas's hand, on Saturday, November 16th. His brother William had just emerged from his hiding place near Kingston and returned safely to Kentucky to meet his older brother in London. As far as he knew at the time, at least six and maybe eight bridges had been successfully destroyed. Carter wrote these details into his letter, and he added, The consternation among the secessionists of East Tennessee is very great. The Union men are waiting with longing and anxiety for the appearance of federal forces on the Cumberland Mountains, and all are ready to rise up in defense of the federal government. General, if it be possible, do urge the commanding general to give us some additional force and let us advance into East Tennessee. Now is the time, and such a people as those who live in East Tennessee deserve and should be relieved and protected. You know the importance of this move and will, I hope, use all your influence to effect it. Our men will go forward with a shout to relieve their native land. Thomas remained tethered, however. Although Buell was not rattled by Johnston's constant minor movements, neither was he inclined to change the course set by Sherman. More critically, Buell did not agree with any plan that gave priority to the liberation of East Tennessee. To his mind, Middle Tennessee, and the city of Nashville in particular were the key to control both of that state and of Chattanooga, the gateway to the southern heartland. Of course, Buell now happened to be in command of the Federal Army best disposed to move toward that objective. At this point, there was competition between the commanding generals to determine the course of war in the West. George McClellan favored an incursion into East Tennessee because he thought it would take pressure off his pending campaign in Virginia. Henry Halleck, however, believed that it was critical first to seize control of the Mississippi. In each general's case, it would appear that his wisdom and his ambition ran along parallel tracks. Regardless, Buell had no interest in pursuing an immediate advance toward Knoxville, which he perceived to be a tactical nightmare with almost no strategic benefit. Federal troops invading East Tennessee would have to slog it out in the winter rains over narrow mountain roads that were scarcely more than wilderness trails in many places. Light infantry might be able to make it with effort, but their mules, wagons, and artillery would get hopelessly bogged down and be perilously exposed. The probability of failure was high, but success carried its own perils. If the mission should succeed, the Union gain would surely be heavily contested by the Confederates, who still controlled the other two-thirds of the state. The political benefit of gaining a strongly pro-Union territory would come at the military price of posting a large army of occupation in order to keep it, draining precious resources while bringing victory over the Confederacy no closer. W.T. Carter traveled to Louisville to make a personal appeal to the new commander for a change in policy, and Buell heard him out with a show of sympathy and deference, but it didn't change his mind. Any movement of the army into East Tennessee at this time would, from his view, be a distraction at best and, more likely, a fool's errand. On November 20th, Buell ordered Thomas to move his command to Columbia and, shortly afterward, to Lebanon, effectively continuing Sherman's policy of concentration. The 1st and 2nd Tennessee were still stationed in London, sullenly guarding the back door. Samuel Carter continued to write both military and civilian leaders, including President Lincoln, to press for an advance into East Tennessee. It was to no avail. Regardless of his sympathies and personal opinion, Lincoln prudently declined to use his authority as Commander-in-Chief to make tactical field decisions. He occasionally deviated from that principle to the detriment of the war effort. George McClellan also favored a swift invasion, but as General-in-Chief, he was more like a committee chairman than a supreme commander having no direct authority over the armies of other generals. He who had been so bold to promise the backing of the entire U.S. Army for the mission could do little more than urge Buell to devote all your energies toward the salvation of men so eminently deserving our protection. December arrived and whatever opportunity there may have been to recover East Tennessee was quickly lost. There's something Powerfully metaphoric about the burning of bridges, isn't there? Those who planned and endorsed the clandestine mission of sabotage in East Tennessee conceived it as a strategic military strike. They thought it would shorten the war and mitigate its impact upon their cherished home region. They could not have been more wrong. Until now, relations between the Unionist majority and Confederate minority in East Tennessee were raw, but not overtly violent. A veneer of civil respect for the rights of those who disagreed with secession had remained. That veneer of civility was torched along with the bridges. The backlash was more severe than anyone expected. The bridge burning in its aftermath inaugurated a nasty domestic war behind the lines between raiders and home guards. It was waged more like a blood feud than an insurgency. It was bitter and vicious. A war within a war that acknowledged no law but retaliation, no rule but savagery. Colonel W.B. Wood sent a dispatch from Knoxville to Secretary Benjamin on November 20th. In it, he expressed his confidence that the rebellion in East Tennessee has been put down in some of the counties and will be effectually suppressed in less than two weeks in all counties. He summarized the results of their interrogations. The prisoners we have tell us that they had every assurance that the Army was already in the state and would join them in a very few days, that the property of Southern men was to be confiscated and divided amongst those who would take up arms for Lincoln. Five days later, the Confederate States District Attorney for Tennessee, J.C. Ramsey, wired Benjamin the question. The military authorities in command at this post have determined to try the bridge burners and other men charged with treason by a court-martial. What shall I do? Answer. Benjamin immediately shot back. I am very glad to hear the action of the military authorities and hope to hear that they have hung every bridge burner at the end of the burned bridge. November 30th, Colonel Ledbetter sent Benjamin a terse wire from Greenville. Two insurgents have today been tried for bridge burning, found guilty, and hanged. The condemned men were 22 year old Jacob Madison, Matt. Henshaw, and Henry Fry. Henshaw was taken from his pregnant wife and their 18-month-old son, William. Two months later, another son was born, whom his wife named Jacob, after his father. After the hanging, Henshaw's father, William Henshaw, found his way out of Tennessee to enlist in the 2nd Illinois Light Artillery at the age of 53. Henry Fry left a widow and five children his 17-year-old son was forced to watch the execution. It was passed down in Fry's family that before he was hanged, Henry was told that he would be spared if he would pledge allegiance to the Confederacy, and his last words were, When there ceases to be fleas in a hog pen and rebels in hell is when I will pledge allegiance to the Confederacy. There was not enough of the bridge structure left to hang them on, so they were hanged from the great branch of a large tree near the old depot in Greenville. Their bodies were left there in public display. It was Ledbetter's original order to leave them for four days, but the stench became such a public nuisance they were cut down after a day or so. Hugh Self, a lad of sixteen, was apprehended along with Hinshaw and Fry. But he was pardoned. Struck by his youth, Ledbetter decided on clemency also because he was not very intelligent and was led away on that occasion by his father and elder brother, both of whom, I learned, have been captured by General Carroll's troops. In fact, it was the son who had led the father. Harrison self only got involved in the affair to watch over his young son. On December 21st, after four days of testimony, Harrison was convicted by a court-martial of the charges of burning the Lick Creek Bridge and of bearing arms against the Confederacy. He was condemned to be executed by hanging on the day after Christmas. Immediately, his family and friends began making appeals all the way to Jefferson Davis and a presidential pardon was at last granted only two hours before the sentence was to be carried out. Christopher Alexander Hahn, a renowned potter, was tried and convicted on December 10th. Brigadier General William H. Carroll, now commanding in Knoxville, telegraphed Benjamin for permission to execute him, and Benjamin wired about, The law does not require any approval by the president, but he entirely approves my order to hang every bridge burner you can catch and convict. Christopher Hahn fell on the gallows in Knoxville on the 11th, leaving a pregnant wife and four young children. His body was shipped home for burial in Greene County. His descendants continue to the present day to preserve and cherish the U.S. flag that draped his coffin. You remember the words overheard during the attack on the Lick Creek Bridge, Who has Henry Harmon's gun? Well, Jacob and Henry Harmon, betrayed by that thoughtless remark by one of their fellows, were tried by court-martial on December 17th and went straight to the gallows that same day. Although they protested their innocence until death, Jacob the father and Henry the son were deeply involved in that attack. The company had assembled on Jacob's farm and he served as captain under Colonel David Fry. Their not guilty plea doubtless rested on the ground that they acted under lawful military orders and what they did was not treason. There would be no clemency for them. The Harmons were tried in Knoxville, miles away from the Lick Creek Bridge, so gallows were set up in the railroad yard. The woodcut in Brownlow's sketches shows two men standing together on a platform as nooses are placed around their necks. According to observers, though, Jacob Harmon, old and sick, had to sit on the scaffold and watch his son drop before he was made to climb the stairs himself. No last words were recorded. In all, six bridge burners were condemned and five hanged. It must have been galling to Colonel Ledbetter, General Carroll, J.P. Benjamin, and all the leadership that their investigations, arrests, and threats could yield no more convictions than just these six. Hundreds were taken on suspicion, many imprisoned on a variety of charges of disloyalty, and with all their expenditure of energy and desire to be avenged, it's surprising that only five finally faced the hangman's noose. On his eventual return to rejoin his regiment, Captain David Fry informed his superiors that he had in fact enrolled all five of the hanged men into the 2nd Tennessee before the bridge burning took place, which he also confirmed in affidavits soon after the end of the war. All of them were posthumously enrolled in Company F of the 2nd Tennessee by a special act of Congress passed in 1862. Consequently, The men of Alvis Hicks's regiment regarded them all as fallen comrades and their deaths as war crimes, adding fuel to their anger over the Confederate takeover of their home country. It took time for the news of the secret operation, with its mixed results and unhappy consequences, to trickle back to the Tennessee men in London. The first report they heard was that some of their own officers had led patriots back home to prepare for a war of liberation. That word brought cheers to their mouths and exhilaration to their hearts. General Carter urged his men to be ready any moment for orders to march. And then, as day after perplexing day of delay passed, the men felt their frustrations return along with anger toward their commanding officers and toward the United States Army itself. When word of the imprisonments and the hangings reached them, anger turned to outrage. Many of the men had kinfolk and neighbors who were directly affected by the rebel retaliation. Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Truett was particularly alarmed and grieved at the arrest of his father. An attorney by profession and one of the best speechmakers among the Tennesseans, Truett was a popular officer who contributed much to the morale of the troops. The stress of worrying about the old man noticeably affected the colonel's health and countenance. His 64-year-old father Levi did not have a strong constitution and Truett's anxiety for him was a burden shared by the whole camp. Epilogue W.B. Carter did not attempt any further paramilitary operations or any other participation for the rest of the war. He continued for a while to lobby General Buell for the East Tennessee invasion, but it soon became obvious that the war west of the Appalachians would take a different course. He apparently retired to private life, joined in Kentucky by Elizabeth and their children, who were expelled by the Confederate authorities. After the war, he returned to his farm in Elizabethton to raise his family, increasing it by a daughter, born in 1867. His enemies, not content to let him live in peace, spread ludicrously slanderous rumors and published letters in the Knoxville paper accusing him of receiving from Washington not $2,500 cash, but $25,000 in federal gold that he had hoarded for himself. He had more defenders than detractors, however, and those who knew him considered the accusations unfounded and scurrilous. They didn't blame him for the failure of the bridge-burning endeavor, but looked upon him rather as one who was betrayed by generals and undone by the vicissitudes of war. He lived to the age of 82, honored by family, friends, and neighbors for his secret service to the Union. To his dying day, he never betrayed the names of those who were involved with him in the mission, even though many were already publicly known and several had personally revealed themselves and others. Captain William Cross made his way back to Kentucky possibly accompanying W.B. Carter, and assumed the role of a company commander in the newly formed 3rd Tennessee Volunteer Infantry. He soon attained the rank of Major, ascended to command of the regiment, and eventually was promoted to Colonel. His record includes honorable service in the Battle of Nashville and in Sherman's Atlanta campaign. Among the bridge burners, A.M. Kate made it to Kentucky in early 1862 enlisting in the 6th Tennessee Infantry as a lieutenant, and eventually becoming a captain. William Pickens recovered from his wounds to become the colonel of the 3rd Tennessee Cavalry. One of the key members of his bridge-burning company, Daniel Ray, became the colonel of the 2nd Tennessee Cavalry. The railroad bridge at Strawberry Plains that survived their attack would eventually be burned twice. First time was in June 1863 by a tactical unit of mounted infantry led by Colonel William P. Sanders. Purpose of that operation, which included troops from the first Tennessee volunteers, was to disrupt the Confederate supply line so as to cover the Army of the Ohio's advance into East Tennessee under General Burnside. Union troops rebuilt the bridge that summer after Knoxville came under federal control. But in the late fall, it was captured and used by General Longstreet during the siege of Knoxville. So, in January 1864, an Indiana regiment, the 80th, burned it again in order to keep it from falling back into Confederate hands. That same regiment marched over a newly and finally rebuilt bridge on April 22, 1864. Private James Keelan the plucky and lucky defender of the Strawberry Plains Bridge, survived his wounds and the loss of his left hand, but his notoriety was as short-lived as the Confederacy. After the war, he eked out a living through hard scrabble farming and odd jobs. In 1894, a reporter from the Louisville Courier-Journal heard about his legendary exploits and sought an interview, and thus the immortal James Keelan story was told once more to a new generation of Southerners seeking an unlikely hero. He died a year later, was buried in Bristol, Tennessee. Almost a century later, on August 20, 1994, Jimmy Keelan was posthumously awarded the Confederate Medal of Honor, which is on permanent display in the United Daughters of the Confederacy Confederate Museum in Knoxville. By the way, not everyone will agree with my summary and conclusions regarding the episode at Strawberry Plains, the, the venerable United Daughters of the Confederacy among them. There are two very different renditions of the story, each built on its own set of alleged facts the Bridgeburner side, as presented by Oliver Temple, and Private Keelan's side, presented by Radford Gatlin, and somewhat more moderately by the Louisville journalist and the UDC Confederate Museum. One problem is that all the testimony we have is second hand and another is that we can't cross examine the witness participants we can however weigh the evidence and compare the testimony to verifiable facts it's best to start by assuming that all the eyewitnesses are telling the truth as they perceive it and then try to harmonize the different versions to the extent possible overall and with some amendments that take keelan's experience into account as i have done the version told by oliver temple is by far more probable and more plausible than its counterpart. Captain David Fry, after biding his time in the mountains for a week after the bridge burning, finally got word from Andy Hall, a mountaineer from F Company who had been sent as a scout to recall him, that the Army was not coming down. Fry was now, however, in command of nearly a hundred men, all of whom he had personally sworn into service into the Second Tennessee. He didn't think he could presently lead them all back to Union lines in Kentucky, so he resolved to stay with them and conduct a war behind the lines. According to one source, within a couple of weeks his band swelled to become a small regiment of 672. He piloted many of them north and led the rest as a guerrilla force for some time, surviving three gunshot wounds. And creating havoc behind rebel lines until he was captured around April 1st, 1862. This time, he was sent down to Atlanta, imprisoned, and tried as a spy against the written protest of General S.P. Carter, who sent a message across the lines to Confederate General Kirby Smith pleading that Fry was a U.S. Army officer and had acted within the rules of war. Oh, they didn't listen. He was sentenced to hang. But once again, he escaped. His partners in the escape were men who were part of another later scheme to burn Confederate railroad bridges. Uh, they had made off with a locomotive called the General and came close to succeeding. Their improbable adventure is a notable and enthralling Civil War story in itself known as the Great Locomotive Chase. It was the inspiration for Buster Keaton's classic silent adventure comedy, The General, 1926. But that's not our story here, so let's get back to David Fry. Fry's frontier experience and incredible wilderness survival skills served him well in his harrowing journey through enemy-occupied territory. Eventually, he made his way back to the 2nd Tennessee, a long year after he had departed on his mission with William Carter. He resumed command of his company and continued his service, avoiding recapture when the regiment was surrounded at Rogersville. Seven years after the war, David Fry was killed in a train accident. Danville Ledbetter May have been despised by the Unionists of East Tennessee, but he certainly did not disappoint his superiors. On February 27, 1862, they promoted him to Brigadier General. Eventually, he became the Chief Engineer for the Army of Tennessee. And in that role, he designed and supervised the layout of that army's defensive lines for the siege and battle of Chattanooga. He also assisted Longstreet in the siege of Knoxville in the late fall of 1863. When the war ended, Ledbetter did not wait around to apply for a federal parole. He escaped directly to Mexico and from there sailed to Prince Edward Island, Canada, not terribly far from the main home of his youth. He died there of apoplexy in late September 1866 much to the disappointment of Parson Brownlow, Daniel Ellis, and others who would like to have seen him prosecuted and hanged for war crimes. Daniel Ellis escaped into the mountains to become one of the war's most renowned pilots for Unionists, rebel deserters, escaped slaves, and other fugitives headed for the North. He gathered a group of men around him and became a guerrilla leader of great skill and cunning known as the Old Red Fox. Between the time of his escape from a firing squad and the days when East Tennessee was controlled by the Union Army at last, he is said to have led over 4,000 persons across the border. And after the war, he was awarded back pay and pension equal to a captain's wages. His memoir is one of the leading sources for Charles Frazier's award-winning novel, Cold Mountain, which was made into a major motion picture. He is also a source and inspiration for Cameron Judd's Mountain War Trilogy of Novels, The Phantom Legion, Season of Reckoning, and The Shadow Warriors. Parson William Brownlow, after languishing in a dank, filthy jail cell in Knoxville for several weeks, was released in late December under the parole of Jefferson Davis and exiled from Tennessee. Ever-defiant. Brownlow crossed the state line proclaiming, appropriately to the Christmas season, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward all men except a few hell-born and hell-bound rebels in Knoxville. He returned to Knoxville in 1863, along with General Burnside's army, and resumed publishing his paper under the name The Knoxville Whig and Rebel Ventilator. Following the war, he became the first governor of Tennessee, under Reconstruction, serving two terms, and then was elected to one term in the U.S. Senate from 1869 to 1875. His retirement from politics brought him back to newspaper publishing for the remaining two years of his life. Jacob and Henry Harmon were buried at the Harmon Family Cemetery at Pottertown in Greene County. The other executed men were buried in church cemeteries in the area. I've already noted that they were posthumously recorded on the roster of the 2nd Tennessee by an act of Congress and thus officially serve as the first fallen of that regiment. A full recognition and ceremonial honor of their wartime sacrifice, however, would wait 135 more years. On October 19, 1996, about 150 folks braved the chilly morning at the Pottertown grave site to participate in the first formal memorial service for all five men. The service was held with full military honors and a 21-gun salute by troops from the 8th Tennessee Volunteer Infantry Regiment USA reenactment group. About half of those present were descendants of those commandos. Bronze markers provided by the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Memorial Programs have been placed at each grave, and a historical marker set in the area of Jacob Harmon's Pottertown Farm, where Davy Fry mustered his troops for an attack on the Lick Creek Bridge. An attack that succeeded, but ultimately failed. As for the men of the Second and all the other volunteers from East Tennessee, the bridge burning and its after effects brought home the terrible reality of this Civil War. Unlike many in those early days who answered President Lincoln's call for arms, the men of East Tennessee, Unionists to the core, did not sign up for an abstract goal of preserving the Union. Still less did they enlist for the sake of a grand and noble adventure, their patriotism was personal. the object being to protect the peace of their own homes. They had thought that they would go up to Kentucky, gather in force, and march back to their hometowns and counties, and take them back from the rebels and, and then the war would be over for them. Alvis Hicks and his brothers and comrades could have little idea how great the war would become or how vast the sweep of it, or or to what insignificance their local issues would shrink in comparison. It was now clear, however, that the storm would not be over soon. The tempest would rage. It was not a fight that they started, but they could neither stop it nor walk away. And now, the home to which they would have retreated was deep in enemy territory, and they could not return until the enemy was defeated. They would have to play their part. Bridges had been burned. You've been listening to Insight with Gary Nation. Come back for Episode 7, when the Tennessee men move toward confrontation with their old nemesis, Felix Zollicoffer. Thanks for joining us.